Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Deadhead Cannabis Show. We have another exciting show for you today, and very excited because today is our first day with the full new team in the booth with me. We have my regular host who's been with me from the very beginning, Jim Marty of Bridge West. Jim is currently celebrating a successful Wednesday at Elway's out in Denver and was kind enough to show us that he just received from the sommelier a bottle of August West Pinot Noir. Jim, welcome to the show. Can you share any of that with us? Yes, my fine wine steward here, Chris Katz, has just served me a sample. 2018, where's it from? Russian River Valley. Russian, uh, Sonoma, Russian River Valley. I'm going to go on mute because I'm getting some background noise here at uh, Elway's Cherry Creek. So I'm going to stay on mute for most of the time and let you and Mr. Hunt uh, take the lead here. You got it. And so let me just first of all say that we're all in the wrong business because if we were accountants, we'd be having a nice dinner like Jim tonight. So good for him. And I'm glad somebody's enjoying it. But in addition to Jim, we do again have our new uh, co-host who's going to be joining us on a uh, a regular basis now, Rob Hunt, who we are thrilled to have with us. Rob, how you doing? I'm great, Larry. How you doing? Well, I would be doing a lot better if I was at Elway's with a glass of yeah. August West and a big steak getting set down in front of me. But otherwise, I can't complain. How about you? Yeah, look, I, as you said, the irony's not lost in us. I would always think that if you're going to name a wine August West, it would probably be a non-alcoholic Pinot. I always thought the whole idea of, of Warfrat was introspection on kind of what a degenerate drunk you become. And perhaps it was time to, to change your, your life around a little bit. So I love the fact that Jim is embracing his inner August West and pounding Pinot <laughs> at Elway's right now. We all be so lucky to, to hit the point where we're not worried about drinking August West wine. Exactly. Hey, how does that line from? Warfrat go. I love my pearly baby more than my wine. Pearly Baker. He's talking about, uh, he's talking about his life story and saying that the only person he loves more than drinking is Pearly Baker, who was his girlfriend. Yep. Before he spends half of his life doing time for some other fucker's crime. That's what happens when you go down the wrong road. It gets a little bit dangerous. <laughs> exactly. We have to worry about that too. Yeah. No, but everybody's doing well here, Rob. And this is great that we have a chance for all of us to be on the show today. And we've got some exciting things to talk about. And uh, let's get started with a little bit of what's happening in the marijuana world. And uh, folks, this is where Rob pays dividends because he's involved in, in the whole world of business and finance, as is Jim. But uh, Rob is out there on the front line. And we were talking about the fact that the deal flow is just crazy, but even crazier are the size of these deals. Right, Rob? It's insanity right now. Yeah, I've never seen anything like it ever since the Georgia runoff election was, was finished up on January 5th. The announcement deal flow that's happened as a result because the market sentiment right now is seeing that the inevitability of federal legalization is you know marching faster than it ever has been. You've seen more companies on the public side announce that they're going to do raises that were oversubscribed, filled in 24 hours, the cold green shoe being filled, the whole president's list being filled, deal sizes that are $300 million in new capital, $224 million for, for TerraSend, $60 million for Jushi. Cureleaf did a raise, Columbia Care did a raise, and then you think about all sort of the medium-sized companies, the ones that are sub-billion dollar market caps, and almost every single retail name you can think of in Canada and the United States, Aurora just did a massive you know, multi-hundred million dollar raise, and this has all happened in the last two weeks. So there's a euphoria on the market that I've never seen before. I haven't seen this since since back when Canopy Growth got their first in, infusion of capital from the guys at... at uh, Constellation Brands. So it's it's nuts. Now, I don't know if you've been following it also, Larry. I have been following a little bit, but it tends to go over my head. But Jim Marty here, you've, you were telling us you've been involved in some of these deals yourself, have you not, Jim? 
Yeah, we're seeing some of our clients sell for um, two and a half times revenue, where for the last probably five years, it's been stuck around one times revenue. So it is really um, surprising to see a, um, just say a $10 million cannabis company in sales sell for $25 million. Certainly our cannabis clients have come out on the right side of the bright line of COVID, where in 2020, marijuana and cannabis sales are certainly one of the, the bright side of the line as winners. The other side of the line, I'm so glad to see our restaurants and bars reopening here in Colorado, but it's been a very tough year for them. So yeah, they say in business, if you say you have to hold your breath and you count to three, you can hold your breath. But if you just say, I have to count, hold my breath right now, and that's what happened in COVID. You have to hold your breath right now. That's hard to do if you don't have any warning. And that's what happened in COVID. We're only now which side of the line all these businesses fell. I'm walking around today, one of the most prestigious parts of Denver, Cherry Creek, and there's so many for sale in Fort Lee signs. Very sad. But uh, yeah, our cannabis clients all had record sales and they couldn't be happier. I was just up in last week. I missed the show because I was returning from Oregon and they've seen prices stabilize at wholesale. A year ago, they were $800 pounds and everyone's jumping out the window. This year, pounds are 1400 to 1800 And I can tell you this, they have some very fine farmers up in Oregon. And Jim, haven't you seen similar increase in prices in Colorado? Yeah, we're a little higher than Oregon. Our wholesale prices are 1800 to 2000 But that still leaves you with a $25, $30 race at retail, which is not bad. And certainly retail sales are very strong. Colorado did $2.2 billion. And we're a pretty small state population-wise. We're only six, about six, 6.5 million total, three, three and a half million adults. That's pretty small state population-wise. And uh, we pulled down 2.2 billion in sales. I think cannabis is in a good place. The new administration may help us and they may not. I've expressed right. my concern legalization on past shows. I continue yep. to. The big question in my mind is, will we have cross-border traffic or will the states remain silos we have for the last 10 years grown up in a silo environment let me tell you they're chomping at the bit in oregon to ship i bet <laughs> california too i have no doubt but that's what illinois is afraid of if all of a sudden california can ship into illinois what's going to happen to the illinois growers yeah medford oregon where i was is considered the top of the emerald triangle and then the lower half of it is down in california medford oregon is 20 miles north of the border of California. Okay. Rob, let me ask you, how do you see this uh, you know, sudden surge in the industry playing out in terms of deal flow? Yeah, look, it's crazy. What, what Jim was just saying, with asset prices rising in Colorado from some of his clients, everything that I was discussing previously was you know, related to the public sector. In the public sector right now, those companies are all so flush with cash. So while some of that cash is being used to pay down debt and being used to, to shore up some build out of infrastructure, the vast majority of that capital, from everything I understand, is being used now to make uh, offers on smaller you know, private companies as these companies are looking to expand into new markets. Asset prices are rising. Lots of companies now are putting themselves up for sale. Lots of companies now are much more comfortable with accepting uh, someone else's stock as currency. Whereas a couple of years ago, the, the perception was if you're a public company and you're being acquired by a public company, no one really wanted your paper because the paper was, was falling so fast in value. 
But now you're not seeing that. You're seeing record record quarters coming out from some of these companies. And now you're seeing companies entertaining offers will say, look, I'll take 20% of my consideration in cash, 40% of it in a seller's note and 40% of it in stock. And, and those deals are getting done pretty quickly right now. So if, if you're a small canvas company, you're pretty excited about your prospects right now if, you're, if your balance sheet is clean. Yes, I can back that up. And they're publicly traded, so I can mention their name, General Cannabis. Their stock was $0.40 cents a share not too long ago, actually the beginning of this month, and it's now um, over $1.40. So they've tripled their stock valuation in the last three, four weeks. And one of my clients merged in with them and backing up what Rob Hunt was just saying, that they accepted a large portion of the purchase price in, in general cannabis stock. Yeah, everything you're saying, I 100% can back up with the actual transactions that I've been involved in. As a result of this deal flow, Robert, we're seeing a consolidation of ownership in the industry. Are there more? Are there groups that are buying more and becoming larger and larger, uh, or are we still seeing enough other people come in and make purchases that, you know, overall ownership is still fairly diverse? Yeah, it, it depends. We're certainly seeing consolidation in certain markets, markets that are more free capitalistic uh, style markets like Colorado, Oregon, Washington, and California there is a big wave of consolidation in states that are you know, more oligopoly in nature where there's only limited licenses there there's really much to consolidate like your new yorks or your or floridas but if you look at what just happened in california everyone right now is watching the spat the SPAC market really closely but you saw the subversive SPAC just came to market and that was the marriage of you know Kaliva with left coast ventures with tuatara with a handful of other groups that, that came in it was 525 million dollars on that announced SPAC when they actually despacked it there was still $380 million left in that people actually redeemed and, and stayed in the deal. So when you think about what that means for California, Caliva's going to go out there and use that capital to go out and acquire a ton of other brands, including the ones they acquired from uh, from taking over Left Coast Ventures as well. So you, know, you have to look at deals like that that are coming to the table, and they're not the only ones. So Jonathan Sandelman's got another stack in the market right now that's on the brand side. So you know they're well capitalized, and I think you'll see at least you know, before this year is over, at least three or four more SPACs come out with north of $250 million in available currency, which is, you know, something we've never seen before in the space. We've always seen people do the reverse merges or go public on, you know, the Canadian exchange. This is the first time you're watching just piles of cash be poured into a company through a marriage and coming out the other side where it's specifically for consolidation purposes. And do we see these big guys then positioning themselves to be bought out by like the RJ Reynolds of the world when things go public? Or do you think that these big guys will continue to, to run their businesses and stay a part of the industry? Yeah, I think it depends on the company. I think everything's for sale. If you've got the if you've got the right offer, look, if you asked almost anyone five years ago why they're starting their business, ultimately their exit strategy is probably to be acquired by an out-of-industry uh, conglomerate or a tobacco company or an alcohol company. But now you look at some of the market caps on CureLeaf or on GTI or on TrueLeaf, if you're pushing a 6 to $10 billion market cap, Suddenly, you're not really thinking about being acquired anymore, and you're thinking about consolidating and trying to end up with a 30 or $40 billion market cap on your own. So it's a completely different game. You're starting to see companies that are you know, truly that valuable with stable stock, with great liquidity. Once those guys can list on a real exchange like the, the NICE or on the NASDAQ, then, then it's a completely different situation than when we were looking at a couple of years ago where guys were listing on the CSA. It's just it's just so amazing to me because it wasn't that long ago that this was all so brand new. People were still so nervous. You had your occasional dispensary here and there, and every now and then one would buy the other. And now you do. You pick up the Wall Street Journal or any big uh, uh, business publication, 
And half of the stories you're going to see are going to be involving cannabis one way or another. It's just amazing to me. I'd really, just to see how quickly it's grown, it's been, can it sustain ultimately this level of growth? I guess it can. We all talk about, we, we haven't even, have we hit 50% of the, the black market yet or are we still below that? I think we're there. Yeah, I think legal sales are approaching 50%. You've heard me say in the past that I really believe legal cannabis and illegal cannabis added together are about the same as the U.S. beer market of 110 billion a year. And um, I think we're approaching half of that being legitimate uh, businesses. Yeah, we just had a very uh, divisive election. There was no vision on cannabis. You were a Republican or a Trump supporter or a Joe Biden supporter or a liberal. You were for cannabis. And no, there's, there's very little against it because once you really dive into it, you realize it's a lot better for you than alcohol. In fact, it's actually good for you in many ways. I listened to the Big Steve Hour this morning driving up to the mountains, and he, he was saying the same thing. He said cannabis is a really healthy thing to participate in. I, you're not going to get any disagreement out of this group, that's for sure. When, uh, whenever the rest of society will catch up with the idea, that's a good thing. But let me just say this, mentioning Big Steve, who I think we're all fans of, and he's a fan of cannabis. Maybe if we're lucky somewhere down the road, someday we'll have a chance to speak to him. But uh, let's take this opportunity and uh, do a little bit of a pivot here into the musical side of things, because this cannabis market's not going anywhere except up, and we'll be able to talk about it hopefully for a long time to come. There's only so many hours in the day when you can talk about the dead, and we can't let those go by. One of the things that I really like that I think Rob brings to the show for us, Jim, is a new perspective on dead topics. You and I, for a year, have, I think, proven the point that no matter how many times you talk about the dead, you can always still talk about them a little bit more. But sometimes we find ourselves maybe going over the same ground a few times, and the easiest way to... To, to move that along is just bring another deadhead into the group. And in Rob, we certainly have deadheads deadhead who likes to geek out about it as much as you and I do, and maybe even a little bit more, which for deadhead, it's always great to find a guy who geeks out more because that's just that much more for you to learn. And in talking about stuff, one of the things that, that he and I mentioned over the last few days was really the simultaneous and perhaps completely part of the same movement growth of both the club scene the musical club scene in the San Francisco Bay Area in the late 1960s and the growth of the Grateful Dead and how they really aided and abetted one another, if you will. Uh, the club scenes providing the dead with a perfect place to play for what, who they were at that time in terms of crowd size and intimacy with the crowd and uh, the dead being able to fill these places up for them and bring in good crowds. But it was it was a crazy good time and there's a lot of great musical recordings out there. Rob and I launched into this talking about shows from the Avalon Ballroom in the late 1960s, I think that we saw they played somewhere in the neighborhood of about 25, maybe 30 shows there, but some really great ones. In fact, so many that, and and always at the same time, it seemed in January, late January, that for a while he and I were, we had interchanged years of shows and, but it didn't matter because I, I was looking for January of 69 and found a great run. And he was talking about January of 67 and that was a great run too. And I think it was just something special. I've been in a few of those clubs to hear music, and spend half my time wandering around in there wondering what it would have been like to hear the dead play. But I know, Rob, that, that those Avalon shows are particularly ones that you like a lot. So let's hear your thoughts on it. Yeah, first of all, <laughs> I'm going to use my new moniker now as a deadhead's deadhead geek. So uh, thank you for that, Larry. Uh, 
Yeah, look, man, the, the Avalon shows, by all accounts, the sound was better in that room than the Fillmore. And you, you have to think that time, there was three or four competing promoters in the San Francisco scene. Like Bill Graham always sucks the oxygen out of the room as being the guy that was on the ground doing it at the time. But the Avalon was uh, was Chet Helms' room, and the Family Dog was running that one. And that was you know a super cool scene also that yep. broke so many big artists. And then you had Marty Ballon from the Jefferson Airplane that was uh, running, the I think, the Matrix as well. That venue was happening at the same time. The, the the California Hall was happening at the same time. You had the Ark, which was an old abandoned ferry that was parked over in Marin. That was essentially just a, a huge ballroom on a ship, which was super cool. And all these different promoters were getting together and trying to outdo each other for who could break more bands at the time, whether it was you know Janice or whether it was the Jefferson Airplane or whether it was the Dead or Santana or the early like versions of Pre-Steppenwolf or Moby Grape. But all those venues on any given night, you could have five or six shows, which you know, is, is really similar to what the Denver scene is today with the Fillmore there and the Cervantes and the Bluebird and a few other venues where any, anytime you've got a city that's got six or seven great rooms, it's so much fun. And obviously, like that, that kind of segued in the late 60s into the Fillmore being the, the dominant venue. And then ultimately, as they outgrew that, going into places like the Great American Music Hall or ultimately the Fillmore as well. Excuse me, the Warfield as well. Those are all great rooms. You and I started talking about this because in late January of, of 69, you've got on um, January 26, 69, one of the quintessential Dark Star St. Stephen the 11 Love Lights is the first time they really started like breaking that out as a staple. And then you look a couple years back before that, and the show I was talking about, which is January 27th, which is today, 1967, was like one of your classic violently bluses and just a, a, a massive alligator on those nights like both 20 minutes in length just crushing for that era so many things that were like representative of who the dead were at that time were played to their home audiences to, to try to build that audience locally before they took it out on the road to the rest of the country and those were just the right size crowds to do it I just learned recently that Viola Lee Blues is actually a cover from the 1920s blues songs. It's a tune that I know has been around for a long time. I don't remember who the original, whose credit is the original writer of the song, but I know it's, it's, it's an old tune that they picked up that had been played in various farms, forms over a number of years. Not unlike Stagger Lee, I think, and a few other tunes that had like long histories behind them, and they created their own version of it. And you can go on Google and find Viola Lee Blues Grateful Dead, and it's got it's got their version of it. So. As long as I can find that, I'm a happy guy. Yep. And um, they did so many um, great shows in that era. And again, listen to the big Steve Hour today. The record companies were just shocked that the Grateful Dead would play new material and let it be recorded by the audience before the record came out. Right. And something that the record companies, I'm sure, were not very happy about. But that was all part of the, the dead magic. That It was the music uh for the people. And Rob, going through that list, let's not also forget the uh, Carousel Ballroom, which in the, I think, 68, the Dead and the Airplane and Quicksilver and I want to say maybe the Steve Miller Band. And they had three or four bands that actually right. took ownership of it for a while. And so they, they were running both sides of it until about the middle of that year when I think they all threw up their hands and, and sold out to Bill Graham. And just to make life confusing for everyone, he transferred, he renamed the Carousel the Fillmore West. So he actually yeah. had the Fillmore out there and the Fillmore West and the Fillmore East for another couple of years. Then they eventually all closed down. And the original Fillmore, the one on Geary Street, is the one that's still there today. And I've seen some shows there, not no dead shows, but I've definitely seen shows there. And it's a, it's an incredible place. Never made it to the Carousel or the, uh, the Fillmore West itself, although the Fillmore West was home to, I think, one of the greatest four-night runs they ever had at the end of uh, February, beginning of March. 
69 when they specifically focused on that Dark Star St. Stephen the 11 Love Light suite of songs and all the others. And I was lucky enough to pick up a copy of that box set when they dropped it probably 10 years ago now. And it's, I just can listen to it all day long. It's just tremendous. It's one of the nights they have a version of Pigpen singing the full version of Hey Jude on there. He just butchers it, but it doesn't matter. It's Pigpen. It's the Fillmore. It's wonderful to hear. And they're just great. It's all these songs were so brand new and they hadn't played Dark Star to Death at that point yet. And they were still just stretching their arms and legs and figuring out where they could go with it. And and, and those Avalon shows we were talking about on the 26th, they pulled uh, the 11 and Love Light off of those shows and put those on Live Dead with the rest of Live Dead came from those Fillmore West shows. But the, that Avalon show was so good that they had to pull uh, the 11 and Love Light and, and stick it on there too. Yeah, Love Light's the one that when people think about Love Light from that era, I think any deadhead just thinks that ending closer of and leave it on. That's the, uh, the way to finish it off. And that's one of the only times you really hear Phil Lesh like really yell on stage a couple of times where it's really right. funny to hear him get involved uh, as he's talking to Pig. Really fun uh, banter between uh, between members of the band. And, and again, I always found it really interesting because they'd outgrow a venue and they'd move into the next one, then outgrow a venue and move it to the next one. And it got to the point that to your what you were saying before, Bill got rid of the Fillmore's in favor of ultimately taking over Winterland as a place that he was promoting because he needed a room that was bigger to put his bigger acts. If you look at the size of those places, they're all 2,000 person theaters that were like the vaudevillian theaters that ultimately just weren't enough for for those bands anymore. So you need to, to get, get bigger. Just the, the organic way that they grew, you know, from ballroom to stadium over the, you know, the course of their careers. And uh, just a quick comment, I believe Love Light is also a cover. The Grateful Net gave us such a connection to all the great blues music that came out of our our black history. And, uh, I mean, their connection to the whole American story is beautiful. Yeah, it really is. And, and and it was wonderful that they had the opportunity to be part of this scene when they were just getting going and how supportive it was for them. And, and what a great way. To your point, Rob, the dead, for a long time, when they would come to Chicago, they would play the Uptown Theater, which is yeah. about a 2,000 seat. See, I never saw them. There was a little before my time. And since the mid-80s, the Uptown has been completely shuttered down. And about every 10 years, there's talk that somebody's going to reopen it and, and, and bring it back to its former glory. And they never quite get there. We'll keep our fingers crossed. And then the other, my other small venue story, in St. Louis, they had a place called the Fox Theater. They still do, yeah. uh, which was a favorite place for the dead in, in the late 60s. They would go there all the time. And then in the early 70s, the theater shut down. The Grateful Dead offered to buy the Fox Theater from the city of St. Louis, but the city of St. Louis turned them down and said that was not the right element to own a theater in the city or so that. So there was a long period of time where they just didn't even come to St. Louis. And then in 1986, and if I say 86, you know where I'm going with this, they announced two shows at the Fox Theater in July. And we all immediately mailed in. I got my tickets the first or second night. I had second row orchestra pit tickets. My parents were out of town. I had a huge crowd of deadhead friends coming in. And three weeks before, my brother, who has nothing to do with the Grateful Dead, called me and said, what are you going to do now? I heard Garcia just is in a coma. And I was like, ha, ha, ha. And the next thing, Jerry was in a diabetic coma. And even though we all knew those shows were going to be canceled, it was like, maybe they won't. Maybe he'll come back. And, of course, they canceled it. That's as close as I ever got to seeing the dead in a really small venue like that. But 20 or 30 years later in uh, 2010, I think, uh, I finally made up for it. And I got to see a fish show 
in the Fox Theater in St. Louis. And although I, I like fish a lot, they're not quite the dead, so it wasn't quite the same. But it did confirm that the Fox Theater is an awesome place to see a concert. Yeah, and the, the thing about those venues is the sound quality is so much better than it is when you're inside a, a sports arena. Yep. So, you know, it's not just the intimacy of, uh, of being in that venue. It's also the fact that you just have incredible acoustics. And uh, you, you look at some of the, the old theaters from, like, San Francisco at that time, and they were all competing for space with one another. And sometimes right on Polk Street, where the Avalon was, is right next door to the Regency, which is still around. And you have to think that, like, at, you know, in the 20s and 30s, you'd have a Broadway row where there'd be six or seven theaters in a row. And if, you, if they were all sitting abandoned, then promoters could just pick it up and go in there and test out, like, okay, who's got the best sound inside this joint? Let's go play that room. Exactly. And I've seen beautiful shows at the Fox and um, St. Louis. Great venue, wonderful old venue. Yeah, the Fox Theater is great. I also saw... There's a movie out there called Hail Rock and Roll, which is the Chuck Berry movie, and they filmed that at the Fox Theater. And so uh, I was there the night they filmed it. One of my buddies and I got tickets, and we all went. And it was funny because there was all these rumors about all these people who were going to come out and play with him. We knew that Keith Richards was going to be part of his band, but everybody was imagining everything. People had Garcia there and all sorts of people. And as it turned out, not very many other people showed up, but it was still a lot of fun. And, and to your point, Rob, it was such an awesome place to see a show and the the sound in, in these places. It's the Chicago Theater here. I saw Warren Haynes do his thing there with the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. And we were all just amazed by the sound quality and, and how wonderful it was. Yeah, you know, that's all good stuff all the way around. Jim, you mentioned, or maybe Rob, you mentioned Cervantes. I just got an email from our good friend, Bob Hoban, the other day. Apparently he said John Catalasic was playing there the other night. Were you familiar with that, uh, Jim? I did not. I missed that one. But Denver is opening up. Hellways tonight has got a lot of people here dining indoors. Our son Jack, his band, his bands, I should say, uh, Kings of Persia and Squerve are both getting gigs starting in March. So we're starting to open up here. Wonderful. Let's hear the Emerald story, the Green Emerald story. Yeah, the Emerald Triangle. We have a very good client in um, Southern Oregon, Medford, Medford, Oregon, which is considered the peak of the Emerald Triangle. And then it spreads out as you go south into California. Medford, Oregon is probably 20 uh, miles north of the California border. And I have a beautiful picture I can share with Dan and you guys of uh, Mount Shasta. I'm, in or I'm standing in Oregon, but in the background is Mount Shasta. And it um, looks like a giant ice cube at this time of the year with all the ice on top. Beautiful. But the point is that if you ever hear of the state of Jefferson, in the 1920s and the 1930s, there was a movement to create a new state, not an independent country, but a new state carved out of Northern California in Southern Oregon, basically the Emerald Triangle, where they wanted to be a new state. And there was a very wealthy man who came in from New York and bankrolled the whole thing. And it was actually getting traction. It was getting in front of Congress. But then Pearl Harbor happened and it died. But when you have Southern Oregon and Northern California, which is the Emerald Triangle, very anti-government, very pro-gun, very pro-cannabis, that's where it all came from. So check it out. It's called the State of drive around southern oregon and northern california right on the border you see a lot of signs and monuments like that say the state of jefferson check it out do they have their own license plates they want to i bet 
I bet. Okay. I love that independent mindset. I'll tell you, Southern Oregon, very independent. Uh, as I said earlier in the show, uh, great growers, fabulous farmers. I witnessed transactions of hundreds and hundreds of pounds of beautiful cannabis. It's a great place to be. That's a wonderful thing. Jim, I'll tell you what, we're going to wrap up here in a minute. So we're going to let you go back to, to your dinner and your bottle of wine and your steak cooked Pittsburgh style, I know is your preference. You have a great evening and we will be touching base with you later, but that's send us a picture of that to August West. That'll be wonderful. One of these nights, Rob, we'll have to get out there and, and we can sit in Elway's with Jim and uh, we can all be part of the celebration together. So something to look forward to when, when this darkness starts to give. I suggest we get a private room when we do that, Larry, and we'll cork a couple bottles, do the show quietly, drink some August West and do it. So a little easier for our audience to hear us <laughs> through the uh, through the microphone, but sure it seems like Jim was having a good time tonight. Jim always has a good time. I've been to Elway's with him, and I have to tell you, I, I happen to Elway's. It's a good it's a good steak joint. But Jim walks in, and he's like the mayor. He knows everybody, and they, he knows the Mater Dean. He knows the sommelier, and he has his own waiter who he always uses. And it's like a whole production. It's like Norm walking into Cheers. But he just walks in, and the, the place lights up. It's it's really an adventure. It's more than just going out to dinner. That's awesome. I miss that. And one of these days I might actually get to go out to dinner again. It's been uh, been far too long. So about a, about a year in before I've actually sat down to a dinner. So soon enough. But uh, in the meantime, we always have the music to keep us company and uh, hopefully some nice Northern Emerald uh, Triangle weed. And if we do, then everything should be groovy. Everything is all good. Absolutely, my friend. And uh, for our listeners, we've got some some great shows coming up where we're going to be talking about a lot of fun stuff. Soon to pop up is a uh, conversation of a killer dead show from Market Square Arena in Indianapolis back in 1979. And uh, we won't spoil the surprise for it, but anybody who wants to go and listen to Candyman on archive.org or archive.com or whatever it is before our show, you'll really appreciate our discussion on it that much more. It's a great show, but the Candyman lead-in is very entertaining. And as Rob says, worth the price of admission alone. Yeah, and I think that going forward, we're going to try to do more curated, fun things that are relevant to the date that we're doing the show or taping the show, whether it's birthdays of band members or whether it's specific shows or specific venues, but really trying to find ways to say, hey, this is what we're talking about and the reason we're talking about it, so we can really mix up and have some some really nice topics to, to go through as we're, as we're entering the show. So we'll start giving the audience a bit more you know, warning as far as what we're going to be talking about next, which guests we're going to be having on next as well, and giving a little bit of a heads up to, to try to get people to uh, start telling their friends, listen to the next one, because we got a lot of fun stuff to talk about with The Grateful Dead and tons of fun stuff to always talk about with uh, the changing world of cannabis. But we hope you guys keep joining us. Absolutely, Rob. And that's why it's great to have you on the show, because one more talking head in this area is always a good thing. And uh, so once again, we're happy to have you on with us and uh, and glad you can be part of it. And also, as we always do, a quick shout out and thank you to our uh, producer, Dan Humiston, for being wise enough and bright enough to make that pairing and bring Rob into the mix along with us. And uh, so once again, folks, we're going forward. We're excited about it and good things to come. So, Rob, great show today. Thank you very much. Take care of yourself out there and enjoy the warm weather. Thanks so much, Larry. Thanks so much, Dan. It's great being here with you guys. Until next week. Very good, folks. That's our show for today. We hope you will listen to us next time. From cold and snowy Chicago, Larry Mishkin signing off, telling everyone to have fun, uh, listen to some Grateful Dead, and enjoy your cannabis responsibly. Thank you.
Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hi, my name is Kira Reed, and I'd like to invite you to be inspired by the women who are leading in the cannabis industry. Each week, we will discuss empowerment, leadership, and what it means to be a woman in charge in marijuana, hemp, and CBD. As the founder of the Women Empowered in Cannabis community, I have had the great pleasure to get to know many brilliant and talented women who are CEOs, executives, politicians, advocates, and community leaders that are focused on creating a cannabis economy that is just, fair, and equal. We'll learn how these women make decisions, how they navigate a predominantly male industry, and what they're doing to level the playing field for women. I hope you'll join us.